Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Geraldine Dukes, my name, and uh, I'll be moderating uh, this particular session, which I'll be uh, hoping to chat for about 25, 30 minutes and throw the floor open. And uh, this is uh, where we're going to attempt to work out whether, in fact, the whole diplomatic engagement, the sense of a, a better strategic engagement, better people-to-people -people contacts, could be augmented by thinking differently around the possibilities offered by the Asian Cup. And uh, I know you have a list of, I've been told not to go into long bios because you've got the list of, uh, of bios, but our guests are Justin Brown, who's the first Assistant Secretary, Consular Public Diplomacy and the Parliamentary Affairs Division at DFAT, John McCarthy AO, the Chairman of the Australia India Council, and standing in for George Negus, who had double booked and couldn't be with us, is Les Luck who uh, is just, uh, as of uh, two months ago, as he said, a distinguished retiree, but a senior uh, member of the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and involved, too, in the preparation of the uh, Asia Century White Paper. So a terrific uh, group, I think, to attempt us to take this a bit further. And I was just thinking as I was coming, I had a very interesting interview with Lindsay Fox on Saturday uh, on uh, my radio show, uh, The Logistics Man, and he was regaling me in his inimitable style. I won't tell you all that he said. He's extraordinarily profane in some of his ways. It didn't get to air. <laughs> but uh, he did make the point that uh, Minister Emerson had come to him and said, we need to take a big group to India, and he'd nominated about 30 people. And Lindsay Fox had said, uh, no, no, I'm not doing that. I will pick the five best, in my opinion, I will, I will take them personally and I want the five best in India and we will meet at a very small, absolute peer-to-peer -peer level and then we'll get something out of it, which he subsequently did and he believes, I think it was what, 10 days ago, they had a, a highly effective meeting um, in each other's, in, taken to the home of uh, some of the participants, of a sense of real linkages and Lindsay believes, anyway, that he had a big impact on some of the regulations around trucks, in um, long-standing regulations around trucking um, permits in uh, India, which I suppose was, time will tell, as they say. But it was just an interesting reminder. He said, oh, all this networking, all this business of going to um, functions where there's sort of huge lists of people at every stage in the organisation. He said, that's plastic. That's rubbish. <laughs> you need to really get people peer-to-peer, -peer, absolutely meeting each other. So I just thought it was an interesting thing to uh, be reminded of when we're speaking about this uh, Asian Cup. And I, I'll just actually throw that open. I mean, John McCarthy, does that ring true to you? Does it offer, or is that just Lindsay sort of being a bit idiosyncratic? No, he's, he's, I mean, I'm, he might be idiosyncratic, but he's also right uh, on that, no question. Um, that's you know, a hugely, I think, the most productive way to generate business is in a very, very small group uh, who have time to uh, talk to each other and who have the capacity themselves to make decisions. Um, that said, I think, you know, in, if you're talking in terms of public diplomacy, and this is, you know, not so much public diplomacy, it's, it's generating business uh, in, a, in a particular way. But if you're talking in, in terms of, of, of public diplomacy, I think you, you've probably got, got to get some sort of scheme in your head about what it's about, because it can get very vague and, and airy-fairy if you're not careful. And debate about it tends to be a bit 
up in the air. I think they're probably, if you look at it conceptually, they're probably three areas. First, uh, what you do in the grand scheme of things, and I think John Lord used the phrase, which is most appropriate this morning, in making people more comfortable with Australia. And I think that is important, given that this is essentially a country which uh, thinks in Western ways and has basically a Western culture, whose countries of first priority are countries which are, enti which are entirely different, which puts us in a very different category to, to the Europeans or the Canadians, for example. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing, you know, you're talking about public diplomacy is uh, what we discussed a little bit this morning. How does your public in impact on other countries, on institutions and cultures, affect in a beneficial way your particular interests? And tourism is one example of this, business is another example. In a broader sense, security also, because that is impacted by the way people regard a country as a whole. And then I think your, your sort of final area is really um, what do you do in a very specific way to take advantage of public diplomacy to benefit you? And that comes down to example in, in, a, in, a, in a series of football matches. Who are going to come down to Australia? When they come down, what do you do with them? Which businesses do they have uh, discussions or, or, or meetings with? Uh, what do you do with tourism when a group come down for a specific event? So I think if you try and look at it conceptually, there are those three areas that you have to take into account. I, I actually, I, I can totally see what you're on about, and I will come back to that, but I suppose what I'm just wondering whether we think enough about the putting together of people with similar interests, like is there enough con concentration on bringing people down who are obsessed with football and who actually want to meet similar people, whether they're taken to meet people who are public diplomats one way or the other, and they're actually not twinned with people with similar uh, the, answer, the answer is, as a government, I think we do very little of that. Uh, I think private organisations within Australia are very conscious of that. Mm. And I think that, you know, that is obviously a worthwhile pursuit. Les, like, what would you say has been the experience in the past of, of trying to use sport as, as a lever for better diplomatic engagement? I mean, the 2000 Olympics spring to my mind, but I mean, what, what's been your experience in your various postings? Well, um, I wouldn't, I don't have personal experience of uh, uh, Olympics necessarily, but but I think um, any of these big occasions is, a, is an opportunity to achieve, obviously, immediate, the immediate uh, objectives of the sport or the industry, but also to, to uh, as John says, you know, project the sorts of messages you want to offshore. So certainly, uh, government has a capacity, and it has done, I think, with certainly Commonwealth Games and no doubt the Olympics, including the Paralympics, um, probably... Uh, with various other major events, uh, to to work closely to with with the organisers to achieve those broader goals. Um, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but at some point I think it'd be good if we could address the question of whether or not there needs to be some uh, organised institutional link between the people organising the football show and and the broader public objectives, because we are talking about public goods here, and there needs to be a, a sensible discussion about 
how we realise those public goods, the national interest, the, the public diplomacy side of it, the, the commercial, the broader sort of economic objectives, the image objectives, and you know, who's going to take responsibility for what. So, so um, there's no doubt that government has the capacity to bring um, knowledge of networks, you know, contacts with very senior people in government, but also in, in parts of the international societies and in the, you know, people who make things tick goes to your first question really, you really need to know who those people are and get the right sort of small groups together. And it has a certain amount of know-how in how you actually um, do the messaging. So to, of course to the sports people, there's a lot of detailed expertise I think uh, within the various sporting organisations about how you can use those things for messaging if you take the AFL, what they've done with Indigenous um, players and so on. There's some very subtle messages will actually change um, the, the social messages which can, can actually influence public and community opinion. So governments you know, have some of that knowledge as well. But there needs to be an institution or a mechanism for bringing the, the main organisers together with, uh, with the government capacity. To be honest, you're sounding as if you're speaking conceptually and in the abstract. It's, you're not actually laden with um, experience of this having happened. It's not a criticism. I'm just no. thinking... you. It's something that you think is possible, but it well, hasn't. So, I mean, I, the only reason I, I mean, it's, it, it has happened. I personally have not had those kind of responsibilities, except, of course, you know, we all, we all share some of those responsibilities when we're overseas representing the post and so on. But th there are certain practical ways in which government can, can help. And, uh, and the government, even though it has often meagre resources, does, does have ways of sort of, you know, forming special teams and so on for particular occasions. Uh, Justin is the man who's actually still there pulling the strings because he's got no budget to do so, but nevertheless, <laughs> we'll put you on the spot. Um, have you got any sort of favourite stories of where you think it has happened well? With sporting events? Mm. We don't host many sporting events in Australia, of course, so the Olympics was the high point, and in a way it's not a very good point of comparison because the sheer scale of the exercise it really is a sort of a whole country endeavour. So um, I think the way I look at this is uh, for an event like the, uh, the Football World Cup, um, <coughs> there's a couple of questions we need to ask ourselves when we're talking about how to manage a strategy. Um, I'll just check that you can be heard. No, you can't hear, can you, Benji? Me? No, Justin. I just couldn't hear that you weren't. It is on, so you might have to speak up, I'm afraid. <coughs> Sorry. Is this better? Speak louder. I'll try. It isn't easy, the sound in this room. So I think one of the things that the government is good at, as Les said, is we have a range of different networks which we can bring to the whole of government effort. <coughs> Um, the question, sort of a fundamental threshold question is, do we go for a narrowcast approach or a broadcast approach or some sort of blend of the two? Um, I think it's fair to say in the current sort of budgetary circumstances, the, the default position of uh, most government agencies is to go narrowcast, mm -hmm. in other words, to try and identify the biggest bang for buck, what kind of event, what sort of activities, what sort of strategy will generate <coughs> the, the largest benefits for the investment we make. I think that's the reality at the moment in Canberra. 
So for an event like 2015, I think that's the first question that people will ask. The Olympics are a point of comparison, but there really is uh, a new dynamic with these, uh, with, with this and the, and the Cricket World Cup, which is on in the same year, where I think we need to make some fundamental judgments about how to proceed. Um, so obviously narrow cast is going to be the way to go. And what does that mean? Do you know yet? Well, for example, um, one of the ways DFAT uses events like this to uh, generate a multiplier effect in terms of uh, diplomatic objectives is uh, we deploy various programs uh, that we have in our portfolio to bring influential visitors from overseas to Australia. We have uh, a small pool of money to do that. We have a similar program for uh, media visitors mm -hmm. and uh, they can be uh, grouped around particular themes. In this case it would be uh, football or the cricket, whatever it might be, and that's a way of, uh, if you like, reaping the benefits of those networks that Les talked about, the networks that we, that our posts cultivate and that are often grouped around particular, in this case, sports, and then bringing those individuals and others that we think have got uh, influence in the networks we're trying to cultivate back in the uh, host country to give them a first-hand exposure to Australia. Now, you can also... Uh, use social media in creative ways here to, to get the same benefit or to again multiply the, uh, the impact of these programs. These programs are kind of uh, slightly old-fashioned but they still, they still have some, some value. So that's, that's a sort of practical uh, thing that we, that we would consider. So I mean what would you say government needs from the uh, local committee in terms of access to players or uh, people to, um, to to try to actually advance networking opportunities I suppose if that's the right term or just playing into this narrow casting model that you're talking about well look, I didn't say we should go narrow cast I'm simply saying from a government perspective mm. uh, that that is the budget imperative tends to drive you in that direction but you know, for example, the Australia Network uh, is, uh, is is an asset we could use on the broadcast side of the equation. Um, what do we need to start? Well, personally, I think we need a kind of a leveraging strategy, to, to use an overused word, that, that brings in not only the the trade and investment and uh, uh, the tourism dimension, which you've which we'll discuss this morning, but also <coughs> these, these, these diplomatic questions. In, in a way, it's, it's kind of artificial to separate the, the economic, commercial dimensions from the diplomatic dimensions. There needs to be a sort of a, a concerted whole of system approach to designing a strategy so that we can make maximum use of our resources and everybody has an understanding of, of what we're trying to achieve and, and, the, and the, the methods to achieve it. I suppose a really difficult question for you is, I suppose, does DFAT like the idea of the cup? Is, is, is it into it? <laughs> is it uh, interested? Is it, is it engaged itself? You know, can it see the potential that clearly people in this room can? Um, <laughs> I guess the answer Pass. to that question is yes. I mean, uh, DFAT as an institution, of course, is responsive to whatever political agenda uh, is presented to us by, by the government of the day. If, if there's a direction from the government that this is a priority and that uh, if there is a, a sense that DFAT should take the lead or at least be involved heavily in the coordination of the uh, strategy, then of course uh, we as officials jump to it. Can I make a point there, Jordan? 
I mean, if it's if it's not, I think it, it should be. I mean, government should be should see this as a, a very obvious vehicle for realising some of the the goals of that that white paper that was produced. And and there are some themes there that that uh, I think make this this particular forum, this enterprise, uh, particularly relevant. You know, it's I mean, sport is something that speaks to uh, communal attitudes. Uh, it, it, it appeals to people at a, in, a in a broad level. Um, there is a, a sort of institutional basis in a varying quality, I suppose, in in all the countries of the region, uh, which is already which can certainly be uh, sort of motivated. And um, uh, you know, I think the, the white paper recognises that you know part of the task here is to get um, more links between communities, get more young Australians exposed to our neighbourhood. So they're actually developing <coughs> lasting links beyond the actual event and, and it seems to me that through training, through you know, all sorts of activities you're gonna, you could conceive of, uh, including very practical ones uh, that you know, have to talk about, you could actually um, you know, realise some, some of these broad goals. That's why I said at the start, you know, we are talking beyond purely the, this, this event and this enterprise, we're talking about you know, public, a public good which is you know, furthering the national interest from which um, you know, soccer and football in Australia will benefit yes, enormously in the long run. But John. again, that goes back to the question, you know, and I think your last question really, the, the question is not sort of what can happen with players and so on at the time, but what do we need to be doing now to align government thinking and, and maybe lift the profile of this thing. I don't know how much it's thought about in government yet, but um, with, with uh, what the detailed planning is at the, at the sort of main organisational level. It's fun too. I mean, you know, so much of the engagement is is theoretical and and abstract. And this has got the capacity to be fun. It seems to me that's what's so extraordinarily seductive about it, John. Yeah. Look, just to answer your question, I think if you ask people in posts how much time they spend on public diplomacy, like the football cup, these sorts of issues, they would say a lot. Certainly, the heads of mission do. But the way we are structured and have always been structured in Canberra is to pay lip service to it in the Australian government, and that is all. Now, lately with this white paper, there has been an airing of the issues, and there's a lot of very smart stuff in this white paper. But there is still a lack of a commitment for funding for any of this sort of activity. And, you know, we like to have our cake and eat it, uh, but in the end of the day, we talk the talk, we don't walk the walk. Now this is a fundamental deficiency in the administration of our foreign policy and has been for a generation, and it has not yet been remedied. Let me be absolutely clear on that. We spend about one-fifth to one-tenth on this sort of activity to that amount which is spent by commensurate countries. It is a serious deficiency in the way we look at the region and at the world. Okay, first point. Second point, can we do a lot with soccer? Yes, we can. We have the people, you have some very able people in Canberra, not enough of them doing this sort of work, and you will have it particularly at the posts where if they're tasked to do it, they'll do it, and they'll do it willingly, and they'll do it very well. But what you have to do uh, is, first of all, make people aware in the region of just what we're doing, and that is the broadcast type of public diplomacy to which we've alluded. 
Secondly, it means targeting those particular groups in the country that are likely to be interested, and that is principally people who are interested in football, but also interested in other things. And then look at the individuals who are interested in football, who may want to come down and do business while they're coming down. And, and you have different programs and different targets in each country. Bear in mind the advantage of soccer that you have over rugby and cricket. Soccer is played in most of Asia. Cricket is only played in South Asia. Rugby is played in Japan, but it's very much an elite sport in Japan, whereas it's a grassroots, grassroots soccer is a grassroots sport in Japan. So you're reaching to a slightly different audience with soccer. And that can be very, very beneficial to us, particularly in that first category. Bear in mind, the cup is also uh, relevant to the Middle East. This is a part of the world we do not engage as much as we engage with what we call Asia, East Asia, South Asia. Their soccer is important. There are a whole lot of new areas we can, we can, we can canvas there. Uh, bear in mind also, uh, you know, with soccer, not only the regional thing, but again, it is not an elite sport, which a lot of those other games that we tend to play, like rugby, tends to be in a lot of countries, not in all countries. But rugby is not really a sport that's relevant much outside Japan in Asia. The, the rugby people will, will contest that, but I'm right. Uh, so, you know, let's uh, not underestimate the value of soccer. And I think the other point to make is what is very, very important with this whole exercise of public diplomacy, which is uh, very much alluded to in Henry's report, is the government has to understand that we really have to put some money where our mouth is. We can't just say, in due course, when the time is right, and all these other bureaucratic phrases that creep into it. OK, I've said enough. <laughs> well, I wonder, for instance, um, would you need extra money, Justin, to conduct uh, like a special visits program? You've alluded to this, but the sort of influential uh, Asian figures. I mean, is that what you're talking about with the... I, don't, I think it would be outside your usual programs that you have here, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I guess I'm giving those as examples of programs that are in existence at the moment. But, but John's absolutely right, of course. If you make a decision to devote your entire program for that particular cycle to, a, to an event, such as the Cup, then it displaces other, other, uh, other events, other worthy priorities. And uh, the system, of course, without clear political direction, struggles to make the decisions about how to set priorities like that. So you know, one of the weaknesses of the system, I suppose, is there's a tendency on the public diplomacy front to try and spread our resources right. very, very thin to try and please everybody. We end up pleasing you know, very few and uh, you know, not really making a concerted effort. So I, I think John's point is, is uh, crucial to this conversation. If we're going, to, we're going to do this professionally and we're going to pull off uh, an event that's uh, going to have a ripple effect through influential communities in our region and really contribute to the White Paper's vision, then it does need to be backed up with real political commitment. Well, the Bureaucrats can do coordination, they can do uh, uh, things that uh, will be valuable. If it's going to be ambitious, then it takes, uh, it takes high-level political commitment. So it has to be one in Cabinet first? Is that what yeah. you're saying? I mean, the strategy to... to for people to take out of this, you're, you're saying There's that it really has to be taken to the political spectrum first and then come back down to DFAT. Yeah, I, I think the way our system works is that, yes, there's obviously got to be a clear political direction 
and that often has to be backed up with decisions by government on resources. Hmm. And see, Les, from your experience, like if there was something like a Football Asia Council, which was the FFA's uh, submission to the white paper, um, is that, is that, would that help in uh, this pre precise area? I think, I think it would, uh, but it would help way beyond that. I mean, um, it would be a way of lifting the profile and engaging government um, and getting government making decisions relevant to this, which may or may not you know, end up with more resources. I, mean, I don't think it's going to be a lot more resources around in the next few years, whoever's in government, frankly. So uh, part, part of my suggestion, I think, with a, with a council would be not for it to be seen primarily as a vehicle for delivering a hell of a lot more resources, mm. maybe reallocating, reprioritising, but really developing connections, expertise, and, and, and the uh, uh, direction in, in working out what these broader goals are and how we're going to achieve them. But if, you, if, if the goal, say, one of the key goals, was to, for the 12 months or 18 months leading up to the, um, to the cut, that the majority of public diplomacy money was directed to this, is that a doable thing? Is that an achievable thing, and as Justin's pointing out? So it would be taken away from existing, the existing spread. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be a government decision. I don't see a council may be able to influence that and how much of it was done or whether there could be extra money. But, I mean, theoretically it's possible, but it would be a hell of a stretch. And there's almost no money in the program as it is now. In public diplomacy? Yeah. Is that I mean, as John says, it's a... That's a pathetically small amount. I think it's parsimonious, might be the word I'd use. <laughs> <laughs> I, I left three months ago, so I can go with pathetic. <laughs> and he's still in government. <laughs> no, I suppose I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to uh, work out what is a reasonable, a reasonable chunked message that you could attempt to strategically have as a dream that you could actually that would free up some money, some of this existing money, and and is it to is it to basically take over the public diplomacy, such as it is, or is it to put more into it? You know, I'm just trying to think of a of a of a take home message, John, um, that you could put. To the put take home message is new money, new and money. the take home message is um, you know uh, that it is all very well to have this very aspirational tone in the Henry report, but it is not enough. Uh, it was very interesting seeing the way the Henry report was issued. Uh, there's some very good people on that committee, of which Henry is clearly one. Um, at, the, uh, at the time of the launch, uh, according to press reports, some 18 ministers were putting out press reports as if they were going out of press, you know, uh, um, press releases as if they were going out of fashion, um, all saying, you know, we're contributing to this thing. Uh, I mean, they brought in the Murray-Darling scheme, for heaven's sake. I mean, it was just everything was brought into this thing. And it was, you know, quite clearly as a, as a, a sort of neutral outsider, it came across to me as very much as a political exercise. Now, I, I emphasise again, there's a lot of very good material in it, but it needs to have a sense of direction, a sense of where we're going, and a sense of finding some money from somewhere, part of which could be put into something like uh, the Asian Cup. Yeah. Uh, but clearly you can't put all your available money, which is almost nothing, into one event. Um, and there's a lot of, lot of things we were responsible to do. Mm. All right, well look, just a final question before I throw it over to the floor. 
How could the uh, FFA's regular participation um, in uh, uh, AFC activities from you know competitions to committees, how could it be better leveraged today? We've got two years more or less leading up to the to the Asian Cup. Um, I mean, Les, from your experience, I mean, if you could think of, a, of, again, a message to the FFA, what could they most usefully do in terms, well, I don't even know whether they think about public diplomacy, so I suppose that's yeah, yeah. one question, but how would you answer that? Look, I, I think, um, uh, without any deep knowledge of the mechanics, I think what they could do is usefully borrow the expertise of other football associations in the region. I mean, I think getting the getting the pitch right on this thing, and I don't mean the playing field, I mean the actual pitch right on this thing is going to be important. That I think you know, for, for Australia it ought to be something of and with Asia rather than something for Asia. You know, it's a sort of mindset thing. And um, if, if we were going to have one of these, uh, an institution set up to link football and, and government, then I think one of the suggestions I would have is that we actually involve uh, you know, people who are well placed in you know, it's not every Asian country, but selected Asian country. So we draw on their their own sort of mindsets um, in in fashioning something that will have broad appeal. We know what works in Australia, but we need to know what works elsewhere. Um, so that would be one thing I think that you would, you would try and do in, in in that sort of arrangement. Um, borrow that expertise and, and and learn from it. And you know, and and again, develop a sort of lasting connection, which is going to outlive this particular thing for those broader goals. Another thing I think the football association can do, in conjunction with overseas embassies and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, to the to the degree that it's involved, is really work with them very closely in terms of the public messages we want to send out in each country. And it's not necessarily the same in each country. The messages you're sending out about what's happening in Australia is going to be done differently in Japan to the way it's done in the Middle East. Uh, so it's important to use the expertise of embassies. Second, it is important to try and work out who are the significant people in the football world, particularly those that also have an interest in business, and so uh, to bring them down to Australia and to make sure that uh, they're kept informed of what is happening all along leading up to the events uh, that they can be treated in a particular way when they come down to Australia, they can be introduced to possible business contacts and so on. But it is really important to identify the personalities and the uh, certainly the people in the football world here can do that in conjunction with the embassies. Okay, well I might throw it open to the floor. Yes please, uh, right at the... Martin. Thanks very much, Sheridan. Martin Vest for the Institute. Uh, a couple of questions to the panel. In 2005, when we had our first football diplomacy conference here at the Lowy Institute, the big question that was asked was, would the fact that we were now members of the Asian Football League and the fact that we'd be playing regular club football against Asian teams change the nature of a relationship with individual countries? Would that be, would that be a sort of a step change, a positive change in the way we view one another uh, in, in whether Asian management is Australia and vice versa? So my first question to the panel, for, to two former diplomats and one still working, do you think that 
football, soccer is something is, 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 is something that can be incorporated into Grand Australia. I'm not talking about public diplomacy really. Would this become part of a regular dialogue? Does it have the opportunity to change the way those countries see us? Now, um, in, in India, of course, the case was we constantly use cricket as a way of talking about what we had in common. We had very little else in common. It was just one of the things that we desperately hung on to because there was very little else going on in the relationship. So that's my first question. Is this one of those things that really has the potential uh, in the long term to change our relationship with these countries to establish greater commonality if you have a better understanding? My second question relates to e-diplomacy. We talked this morning about social media and uh, there is a low-usage publication on e-diplomacy which talks about how the United States is very effectively embracing diplomacy in the way in which it can get its messages out. It strikes me that this is a fairly low-cost and highly effective way of getting the message out uh, through social media about the fact that Australia now considers itself a football or soccer nation and that there's this great event happening here in 2015. So I'd like to use on those two things. Thanks. Who wants to? Please. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that this is uh, this is a vehicle for achieving those goals. Now, I, I suspect that since 2005, um, the Football Federation's done a lot of hard work in Asia. I don't think it's been easy, I think, yeah, but they have been very foresighted, long-sighted, and realised, I think, some returns now in terms of access to markets, you know, more sporting competition at the elite level, sponsorships, all those sorts of things. So they're really pioneers, I think. Um, I don't think there's an awareness in the, perhaps in government or in the broader community, as much as there could be of, of that. So there's plenty of potential for that to catch up, and for this to have a material uh, impact on the way we see ourselves and the way we see ourselves as part of this region. Now, it's all small bricks in the wall, but these are the sort of steps that have to be taken. E-diplomacy, um, I, I think it's very powerful. It, it may be low cost, but it can be quite quite uh, labour intensive, but I'm not an expert and I think Justin is, so I'll throw that one to you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, just, just on e-diplomacy, we, we certainly recognise that as an institution, DFAT's been slow to get into the game and we have been behind uh, other comparable foreign ministries in using social media to uh, multiply our public diplomacy efforts. I do think we're catching up. So we now have uh, about 20 heads of mission. Now just, we can't keep you going here. Well, I don't know what to do about that. Can't project a bit more. Stand up. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, can I get turned up or something? Um, so we're, we're behind, but I think we are um, catching up. We've now got 20 heads of mission that are tweeting regularly. We have a Facebook page. We have a foreign minister who's very uh, skilled at this. So I think the tools are uh, in the toolbox. E-diplomacy, of course, is exactly that. It's a tool. I'm more focused on the content that we need to send. Simply using the Twitter and uh, Facebook to broadcast the fact that these, this event is taking place in Australia is not my business. My business is uh, promoting Australia. So we've got to find a way to bring the two messages together. Can I just say something, myself, my observation? I, I still think that a lot of this is still speaking too collectively. It's, it, to me, it's about 
and I actually think football has quite a lot of issues by comparison with, say, AFL, is that it doesn't make its individual characters live. And I've, they're not sexy enough. I've, I've said that to people here in local FFA, and they've agreed with me, I might add, that I think that there's a sense of actually um, what's on offer is engagement with individuals. And that isn't done well. So that's individual profiles in, in the media. It's, you know, it's like a sense of actually grasping, but that it's, that it's building the, the individual characters and personalities, much like I was saying earlier, much like Channel 9 years ago, when it built the, its whole genre of um, almost small sporting <coughs> essays that were on that Sunday show. And they built a whole level of expertise. People like Paul Lockyer, my late lamented colleague, built a whole level of beautiful little short documentary making that did not exist before they developed that business of making those individual players come alive um, in a whole range of sports. Now, that's what I think is necessary to make it a game changer. Are you it's, talking about Australian footballers? No, I'm talking about the region's footballers, as a matter of fact. I'm talking about the region's footballers. Yes, sorry? I was going to say, it's, it's the most obvious part of this relationship. We've talked to this um, We've talked a lot about a nation in Malaysia. I speak here as somebody who's reported uh, on football for a number of years. Um, we talk about an engagement with Asia, which has no faces at all. That's right. We have been engaged as part of the Asian Football Confederation for seven years. Uh, Craig's here. I'm Craig might have some views on this. Um, yeah, football broadcasting outlets, and uh, two, three of them after all, have not yet produced a single Asian face to tell no. anything about Asian football. No. So you're asking for a relationship. Exactly right. You know, as a broadcaster, I know that you have to create images to relate to. There are no images to relate to at all. It's an amorphous thing called Asia yeah. and Asian football. It doesn't have personalities. It doesn't have anybody telling me about the other part of the relationship that's coming in the other direction. Anybody who's got any familiar with any relationship will tell you it's all one direction. It ain't going to work. Do you want to say anything, Craig? Do you want to um, no, I, well, look, I, I certainly, um, I think the issue is even broader, and I think the comments are, are spot on. Um, there's many different def demographics that we could say aren't represented in broadcasting, including in football. So it's certainly not alone there. But, um, you know, my question leading into the Asian Cup is, there's a lot of talk this morning about what we know of Asia what is Asia, if you say it's amorphous, but let's say the Asian AFC Confederation, which is 45 other nations, what do they actually think of us? Oh, quite. I agree. What are they, who are we to them? And I don't know that. I'll give you a quick anecdote. When we went into our first Asian Cup in 2007, our, my view personally was that our players acted horribly and there was this huge cultural clash because a lot of our guys are big stars and were at the time in the EPL. And we came in and, and immediately uh, we had consistent issues with referees, for instance, with other players, with the way they interpret <coughs> what we would term fair play, for instance. Uh, and our players reacted very strongly to that because they weren't used to it. And I saw that as just a metaphor of Australia's lack of understanding of Asia broadly. And I think this uh, white paper is perfectly timed, given the Asian Cup. And so my real focus, and that's one area, is broadcasting absolutely correct, is 
uh, how can we use the Asian Cup to, to have that, that sort of bilateral uh, understanding increased? But it, it's obvious to say we want to sell things to Asia. We want to you know, bring people in here, tourism and all that. But actually what we need to do is use the Asian Cup for Australia to understand Asia and to understand our Asian Australians. Mm. Totally agree. Um, and I mean, maybe I'll just, just one little follow-up question before we take Mark away from Craig. <laughs> Bring it back. Um, <clears throat> if I just asked you, Craig, how it's changed you, that seven years exposure uh, in the Asian Federation, I mean, how, how would you answer just personally? Well, I lived in, in, as a young uh, player, I lived and I was in broadcasting as, as a young man in Singapore, Hong Kong, I spent a bit of time in China and so on. So in one sense, I came to it with, with some perspective. Um, but more broadly, I think this Asian Cup is the start of changing Australia, changing our understanding of the region and of who we are. <coughs> So we talk about just being a part of it all the time now. You know, we are a part of the Asian century. You know, I just wonder how many of the Asian countries actually think we are a part of it. And what, what are they thinking? And there's a few representatives in here today. I'm really looking forward to getting their perspective in the next, when it's about social and community and so on. Mm. Uh, but just back to the, our behaviour in that, in that Asian Cup was very interesting from an Australian perspective. Yeah, I think it was normal. Uh, I think it was predictable. And I think most of our national teams, and probably most Australians, would have acted similarly because that's who we were at the time. I actually think our engagement through football is going to change us and our understanding. So what I'd love to see the Asian Cup here is, that's why I mentioned before, I think uh, Lucas Neal, Harry Kuehl, Tim Cale, they should speak to those countries in their languages. So for instance, I'm a big advocate of every time we play Saudi Arabia in pre-match press conference, I think that our national captain should give a, a greeting of welcome and friendship in their language, not in ours. And we fundamentally turn around this, this prospect of Asia's there for us and we're, we're going to sell all our resources and it's going to make us rich to actually truly saying actually they are us and we are them mm. and who are we? And that's what football is really about actually. And which is quite a journey of course, isn't it? It's quite a personal yeah. journey in really. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's a national one, it's a cultural one. Uh, and it can begin at this Asian Cup. And I was saying before, Michael Brown, I think, is really connected with that and he gets it. And that's where the schools are important, that's where the broader community is extremely important. And it's about understanding. You talk about personalities, that's exactly right. Uh, but it can be personalities between two 12-year-old children. Uh, but it's about understanding. And uh, we can all agree that we're only really at the very uh, earliest, we're on the first step of that very tall ladder, I think. I think what you say is 100% right. Me too. I, <clears throat> I have absolutely no problem. It's 100% right. And to give some credit to the government for a change, I think that point of view was certainly picked up in the Henry report, that we have to do more. But what you say about the behaviour of Australians reminds me of something which I think is going to be very important to the way this uh, cup is, is, is held and the way it's run. Uh, sporting events, I think, can have a tremendously positive impact uh, on us as a country, provided, of course, they run well and that there are no significant issues. Now, why I say that is look at, for example, a classic case, the Commonwealth Games in Delhi. Uh, that was a minus for India. The Indians will come out the other side, as they always do, but that was a minus in, in terms of an event. But I think it's also very important to pick up the point you made 
about the way players behave. Um, in India, where I was posted in my last tour, there was one issue that some of you might remember between a cricketer called Harbhajan Singh on the Indian side and Simons, which you know, became a major issue. Now, I'm not sure who's to blame on the whole thing. It was mishandled by both sides. Let's leave it at that. But that very nearly ended up with the Indian team being flown back. Uh, that's not how it was presented by either side, but let me tell you, it was one step away from that. And that would have, you know, had a disastrous impact on, you know, bilateral dealings and, and, and the way we perceived each other and so on. Now, with this uh, particular uh, series of events, with the Asian Cup here, they're going to be something like two and a half billion people watching, whatever the, the, the number is. It's a huge number of people watching. Um, what they're really going to be watching is the games and the way we behave in the games. And you'll only need a couple of incidents involving Australian players, heaven help us, say, getting into race, but short of that, just behaving badly. And all the benefits that we might gain could very easily, or a lot of the benefits could very easily be dissipated. So it is going to be very important that the way we play against other teams is really handled with considerable sensitivity. Now the coaches and, and, and the managers, I'm sure, will see that. But I just want to underline, you only need one or two incidents and the repercussions could be quite disastrous. Going beyond that, Jordan, I think the, the, there is a... When we talk about public diplomacy outward, I think it's an <laughs> exercise internally as well to prepare... We, we want a level of enthusiasm from the community mm. channeled through our media so that, so that their coverage of it is a bit, a bit sympathetic to the fact that there's this huge mix of different cultures and it's not just, you know, the Springboks going off against Australia in a very blokey sort of biffo way. You know, there's, there's going to have to be some subtle messaging about that, I think, to make sure that we, we get it right and then from outside in it looks like we're doing this thing well and we're doing this with enthusiasm and even a bit of sensitivity. Well, yes, and, and I think, if, if, I mean, we, we really love to stage very good events. We're very, we think we do. So I suppose if we really invest and believe that this is a highly significant event, we'll step up to it. And I, that, to me, is what is, it, is on offer. Mm. Whether it's part of preparing the Australian people for the fact that this is a huge event I don't know whether they are yet. I mean, that's part of the part of it, I suppose. Uh, who else? Yes, please. The papers. Sorry, were you ready to ask a question? Yes, I'm David from the University of Western Sydney. I was actually at the uh, at the, the event in 2005, and I, um, just to follow up on the point that's just been made, I, I made I made a similar point then. Didn't think it was particularly well uh, received, uh, which was that I mean, sport is a very highly charged area, so it, and, uh, um, and 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 the assumption has been so far that it, everything is going to be rather anodyne, like it's going to be a, you know, a great party, and and I, and I hope that it is. But there are all kinds of um, other currents that, that run through um, a sporting event. It's quite a, uh, quite a kind of a complex phenomenon. All kinds of undercurrents, historical, contemporary, and so on. I mean, it just have to, uh, doesn't only have to involve Australia. I mean, there are other attentions, for example, 
territorial mm. tensions between China and, and Japan. There have been incidents in, uh, in uh, stadium, uh, in, in, in the working stadium in Beijing, um, you know, uh, where there was violence uh, involving Japanese supporters, for example. Um, so um, I, I don't want to be kind of miserable about it, but I think that, um, the, that we do have to be realistic, uh, as has been suggested. Sometimes these things can be public relations disasters. Just ask, ask China and the torch we make before the 2008 uh, Olympics to see how things can, can change, change quite quickly. So I do think that we, um, we have to be to, to attend not just to the kind of left side of things, um, but also uh, those you know, often quite deeply embedded currents uh, of tension that, that run through any event for which the event becomes a pretext. Thank you. I'm just down here. Thank you. <coughs> um, I'm John Bogby from Football Federation Australia, and um, I'm in danger of sounding a bit defensive, um, which I'll try not to be, but even more troubling is that I'm in danger of agreeing with Craig Foster, which worries me more. Take your time, John. No rush. We are fortunate in that we have been in Asia now for seven years. And Craig's right, our initial behaviour showed where we as Australians were in relation to Asia at the time. We're a group, or our players are a group, that, that have benefited a lot from those seven years. And I think that the concerns you might have about the um, image that will be projected on the field is one that uh, you need to be less concerned about than you would have been a few years ago. Uh, the Socceroos play 10 times a year against Asian teams. Um, They've learned to deal with Asian referees out of necessity. You don't do very well if you do the wrong thing by Asian referees. They've learned to respect and understand their opponents. They're still learning. And it's been a really valuable exercise for them. I was last month uh, with our under 16 women at uh, a tournament in Manila where they were playing the Philippines team, the Thailand team, and the Myanmar team. <coughs> and this was their first occasion. And you could see the difference in what they have yet to learn with what the Matildas, who've now been doing it for seven years, have learned. And we in football need to continue that learning, but we need to use the Asian Cup to extend it beyond the players now to the supporters and the others who will be exposed in front of the Asian television cameras to the different cultures that we, uh, uh, that the, the white paper is urging us to understand better. So I think it's, they're all good points. Um, the, the players are mindful of them and, and the players, with all due respect to Craig and his colleagues, are, are fairly narrow-minded in what they're they're on about, but they have they don't think of public diplomacy, don't they? Well, the, the, not naturally, but the exposure that they've had has meant that they do mm. think about it these mm. days. Wherever we travel, um, the posts, the um, the defect posts are fantastic to us. We always have 
one of uh, the ambassador or, or, or one of his or her staff talk to the players about the cultural um, things we need to know about the country we're in. The players are enormously receptive um, and, and this from people who wouldn't necessarily be thinking that way. Uh, so it's something that we've got to extend beyond the players and we've got an opportunity to, to do it through the Asian Cup. The point I, want, I wanted to ask a question as well. Um, in our engagement as, a, as footballers, as a football organisation with other nations and particularly when we're operating with the posts in, um, in Asian countries, should there be a focus in what we're trying to do? We, we do get involved in functions, in some work with, um, we always do clinics for local kids um, when, the, when the, um, the embassy asks us to do so, we normally have a function which involves a broad range of people, expats, uh, local, um, locals and people from the diplomatic corps. Um, in order to maximise the limited resources that DFAT has, you're telling us, is there a focus that we should be having in uh, the limited amount of public diplomacy work that we're able to do as a football organisation? Very, very good question. Um, I don't know whether Les or Justin. Uh, do you do you mean a geographic focus or a no? A, a, you mean a, a, a line, a sort of a yeah. something you're trying to achieve? Exactly, geographically. We go where we have to go to play the match, so it's 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 within the whole um, gamut of public diplomacy that, that there is. What can yeah. a sporting organisation best try to focus on? I'm asking because the message and the objectives vary from region to region. There's no sort of single message or single line or single, if you like, uh, a strategy that applies regardless of region. So the strategy and the objectives and the modalities that we would use in the Middle East are completely different to those that we might use in Indonesia, for example, or in China, for that matter. So I'm very gratified to hear that you're getting that sort of support from our, our posts. Um, their core objective, of course, is to use whatever assets Australia has got, whether they're cultural assets like the football players or economic assets, to connect with the networks that they have in the ho in that host country. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the messaging is very much one that's tailored depending on the sort of networks that you're penetrating and the kind of uh, events that the activities that you're engaged in. So it's it's difficult for me to give you a sort of a one size fits all answer to that question. It depends very much on where you're going. If it's Asia, of course, there's a a message which I think the white paper could probably capture pretty well. That's the message of Australia as an integral part of the region and our destiny, if you like, is in uh, our integration with the region. That is a sort of a bedrock of our PD messaging uh, in, in Asia. But once you go outside that into Africa, um, maybe just one small postscript, and that is you know, the way the AFL, for example, has uh, undertaken market development and uh, outreach programs in some countries has been an interesting strategy. Part of it's been growing the sport, sort of growing awareness of the sport. Um, but they've also been aware that in the, the way they do that, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a cultural and a public diplomacy dimension to that. So they factor in their kind of activities to deal with both objectives. There's a commercial 
market development strategy and there is a broader, if you like, uh, series of activities which are aimed at connecting with the local, local population and finding a sort of, if you like, a common language through sport which works very well for a whole diverse range of audiences which don't always uh, form a mainstream part of our official public diplomacy effort. So that, that I think is an interesting model. Um, it's, uh, it's horses for courses though, depending on the market. Look, I'd just very briefly say, I think there are two things that in my experience are probably the most beneficial um, if you've got limited resources. One is bringing uh, media down to Australia. It's very obvious, but it, you get a real uh, plus in terms of the spread you get from the message you want to get. And that includes media who are specifically interested in football and media whose interests are wider. And the second thing I think, which is always has uh, huge benefits, is training youth in your particular sport in the country. I must say, um, one of the things in the Australia Malaysia Institute that I sit on is uh, what they have been very keen on knowing is in Australia is how we do things like little athletics, uh, the involvement, very little volunteering in the Malaysian setting. So the business of bringing kids on is something that they're very aware that we do very well. And there's been a, a considerable and quite surprising interest in those sorts of areas that, that they think we're doing quite well. So, I mean, yeah, that was quite a surprise to me when I saw all that. Um, That's your core business, isn't it? I mean, yes. So, why not try and project it offshore if you can? Indeed. It's a real, you know, a real. Yeah, a real sort of knowledge base that's quite precious, actually, I think. We take for granted, but it's not necessarily throughout the region. Now, a gentleman right at the back who's been seeking to... And then Anthony. Thank you, Geraldine. Uh, I'm John Bowen, former colleague of John and Les, now living in penurious, if not parsimonious, retirement. I was amused this morning during an earlier session. Somebody commented that before the, the, the Germany World Cup in 2006, the Germans found they had a PR problem. <laughs> they've, had a, they've had a PR problem for about 70 odd years. <laughs> uh, but we, we've got some history too. Next year will be the 40th anniversary, I think, since the Whitlam government, with the support of the coalition, abolished the white Australia policy. And I wonder to what extent that is still an underlying aspect of, 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 of the image of Australia that's held in, in Asian countries. Look, in my experience, it, it's there, uh, although it's not to the forefront of their thinking. Uh, it's still taught in schools in some countries. It surfaces for occasion. That we have it, that we still have it. No. The history of the white Australian policy is taught in countries, so people are aware of it and aware of it as an issue. I don't think they think we still have it. At least nobody who's informed thinks that we still have it. Um, it can rise to the fore as being part of the national character. That is an inclination towards Europeanism, for want of another phrase, from time to time. It, it arose to my certain knowledge 
during the Indian student crisis. It appeared a bit in press comment and people made reference to it. It actually appeared a little bit in Indonesia during the Timor crisis. Not fair perhaps, but it just came up in, in the national comment. So it is, it's around. But the second point I'd make, and this is just my experience, I mean other people may have different views, is that as the years go by, it's diminishing. I think people are increasingly aware of the multicultural nature of this country. But I'd say you're probably looking at another decade or so before it's uh, off people's horizons completely, and maybe that's a little bit too optimistic. But it is not, I don't think, a major problem any longer. But it's there. Anthony. Um, I wanted to ask um, a couple of questions. One, uh, John's question, but in a different way um, to, to Justin. Um, again, uh, John had a question about you know when Australian teams go overseas, what what areas should they prioritise in terms of doing the other things other than just playing the game? And, and you rightly answered that it's, there's not one answer that, that there's not one solution that fits all. It depends on the country, the tailoring of messages. My question to you is: Is there a mechanism by which um, MFA, DFAT, the Embassy can uh, think about that question with a long enough lead time so you're not just doing things that are a bit ad hoc but you're doing things that have a little bit of a strategy behind it that where the Embassy said, you know, okay, we know you're coming, uh, this is an area we've been focusing on, can you do some work there? Is, it, is there a mechanism? I mean, it may already be done, I, I don't know the mechanics of it, John, but I just wonder whether there's something uh, if you know you're right, you can't you can't tailor a general approach, but is there a mechanism that can help you get around that and tailor tailor your activities in particular countries? Um, <clears throat> there, there's no mechanism. No, I mean at the moment I think it would be done individually by by posts being in touch with the federation and developing a set of activities that make sense for that particular visit and working around that. I, I mentioned the AFL because they do have a, a rolling program of visits to particular markets. So over time, they've developed a certain relationship with individuals in those networks. They have community outreach. They're involved in some of the development programs that Ausaid are running in various countries. So there's a sort of quite a sophisticated, albeit narrow, kind of uh, geographic focus to that. Um, it does take time and investment. So I guess from my point of view, it certainly would be preferable if we could have some kind of regular, regularised and systematic uh, dialogue so that we as a headquarters, uh, the nerve cell if you like of the DFAT uh, system are aware of you know, where you're going and what your, uh, what your schedule is and uh, where there might be opportunities for us to uh, do things to mutual benefit. We'd be very open to that of course. Could I ask a follow up question to that? Hmm. Is it a conscious plus to have the multicultural nature of our teams highlighted. Like if we do have, we've got wonderfully diverse teams, which is a sort of measure of us, and particularly a hallmark uh, um, of football. Like what, I, I've never understood why that isn't <laughs> emphasised more as a huge plus, and couldn't, wouldn't that be something that would play well? in the Asian region, or would it not? I mean, it's a question. We're a migrant country. We, we, we know it. A lot of them are not. They're not mm. at all. So I, I'm assuming it 